I want to do in this teaching is look at what God did by his power in the antebellum South among slaves. Let me begin with uh, just a word of scripture from 1 Corinthians 1. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Unfortunately, the hopes of Robert Carter III that more plantation owners would emancipate their slaves following his own example, those hopes did not materialize. Just the opposite happened. Things worsened for the slaves. As in the days of Pharaoh, when Pharaoh said, now you will make bricks without straw. And that's exactly the same type of thing. The, the, the grip around slaves tightened. It didn't loosen at all. And the reason for that is what happened in 1800. Okay, Robert Carter III finished his emancipation in 1804. And before that was even done, we have the Gabriel Rebellion. Gabriel Prosser was a slave to the north of Richmond on the Prosser farm, who had an idea of staging a rebellion all throughout central Virginia. And he managed secretly to develop a plan that involved hundreds and hundreds of slaves and to keep it secret. His plan was to have one group of slaves, small group, go to the warehouse, the tobacco warehouse on the uh, James River at Richmond and set it afire. Then all the white people were gonna go down to put the fire out. The slaves would then, in large force, amass upon Richmond, seize the arsenal, arm themselves, and kill the white people. And um, this particular plan could have worked and it very nearly did work. But on the night that it was uh, scheduled to take place, um, there was a rain and a flood, the flood of the century, the, the rain that, to end all rains. And so the slaves were not able to get free. Uh, they were not able to, um, cross the rivers and make it to their um, places of meeting and, uh, and execute the plan. And so as a result, Gabriel's rebellion did not take place. Instead, uh, there were those who told about the plan to those who, who were in authority. Uh, the initiators of the rebellion were uh, arrested and they were put on trial. Now at the trial, the testimony came out 
that the slaves had intended to kill every white person except Methodists, Baptists, no, I'm sorry, Methodists, Quakers, and Frenchmen. And so when the word of that plan got out and was published in newspapers, um, almost immediately, at least within a year or two, uh, state houses were making new laws. And the new laws, which varied from state to state, but they all had the effect of saying, it is now from now on going to be illegal for slaves to meet for religious purposes. Also, it's going to be illegal for anybody to educate a slave um, so that they will, will not be able to read their Bibles. Um, and I would like to point out to you that spirit-filled Christianity had created public education for the very purpose of helping even the poor and the uneducated Scots to learn how to read their Bibles so that they could become the royal priesthood of Christ. And that's how public education got its start. But now the other kind of Christianity, power and might Christianity, had the opposite effect in this country. It destroyed all hope of educating slaves, and it destroyed also their legal right to have religious gatherings of any sort. The only uh, way that slaves could worship Christ was if they went with their masters and worshiped in the way prescribed by their masters. And so each state came up with different variations or versions of the same basic pattern. Uh, slaves were not to be educated and slaves were not to get together for religious purposes. Well, it's impossible to put God in that kind of box. And so God moved into action. And the stories that I'm about to tell you probably would have remained completely hidden, but for the research of a professor uh, at Princeton, Albert Rabateau, and his book, Slave Religion. What happened was that God began to meet with and uh, reveal himself directly to slaves. Now, there had been a, a great many uh, churches started where slaves were free to come and hear the gospel. And so Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, uh, all had had church services where slaves could come and go and they were simply a part of the congregation. But now in this changed atmosphere, uh, we're going to have less of that and what God is going to do is to meet directly with the slaves themselves. So he began to raise up slave preachers. And according to Albert Rabateau, there was a, a whole class, a whole generation 
of slave preachers, and here is the written story of one of them. You see, I am a preacher. The Lord called me once when I was working. He called me and told me, in imagination, you know, that he wanted me to preach. I told him I didn't know enough, that I was ignorant, and the folks would laugh at me. But he drew me on and I prayed. I prayed out in the woods and every time I tried to get up from my knees, he would draw me down again. And at last a great light came down sudden to me, a light as big as the moon, and struck me hard on the head and on each shoulder and on the breast here and here and here. And that same time, warmth was in around my heart and I felt that the book was there and my tongue was untied and I preach ever since and is not afraid. I can't read the book, but I has it here. I has the text and the meaning, and I speaks as well as I can, and the congregation takes what the Lord gives me. Can you imagine this kind of experience of the Holy Spirit calling many dozens, perhaps hundreds, we don't know how many, black and illiterate slaves, to become preachers of the gospel. Well, how could that even happen when they don't know how to read? And is there a scriptural basis for us to believe that that could happen? Well, let's go back to the Apostle John. John is concerned that his disciples will keep themselves free of wrong teaching. And listen to what he says is the best way to do that. He says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. So what the Apostle John is saying here is that the best way to assure ourselves that we are protected against false teaching is to stay close to the Lord and to seek his Holy Spirit every day because God has provided by his power to keep us in the right way, to keep us in the truth. And that is what was happening on the Great, the great many plantations among the slaves. God provided for them to know the truth that would set them free, which is not, it's not intended as just a, a statement that truth will set you free. It's the truth of Christ that will set you free in the context of the Apostle John. Out of that preaching of the gospel in the plantations among slaves, there came a whole generation of prayer meetings. Now, the, the slaves had, had been meeting for prayer already, but the, the, the intensity and the urgency of the prayer meetings in what in other situations we call the second great awakening period, but that greatly increased, and the, and the great awa second great awakening among slaves was powerful. And so here we have a, a record of an example of a prayer meeting. Meetings back there meant more than they do now, said one ex-slave. Then everybody's heart was in tune, and when they called on God, they made heaven ring. 
It was more than just Sunday meeting and then no godliness for a week. They would steal off to the fields and in the thickets, and there they called on God out of heavy hearts. A description of a secret prayer meeting was recorded by Peter Randolph, who was a slave in Prince George County, Virginia, until he was freed in 1847. So this is that period prior to the Civil War. Not being allowed to hold meetings on the plantation, the slaves assemble in the swamp out of reach of the patrols. They have an understanding among themselves as to the time and place of getting together. This is often done by the first one arriving, breaking boughs from the trees and bending them in the direction of the selected spot. Arrangements are then made for conducting the exercises. They first ask each other how they feel, the state of their minds, etc. The male members then select a certain space in separate groups for the division of the meeting. Preaching by the brethren then, praying and singing all around until they generally feel quite happy. This, the speaker usually commences by calling himself unworthy, talks very slowly until feeling the spirit he grows excited and in a short time fall, there fall to the ground 20 or 30 men and women under its influence. Prayer meetings were not enough to satisfy the hunger for prayer, and so many times slaves would just pray by themselves, or they would get together in twos or threes, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And so that uh, initiated a thing called kettle prayer on the plantations. What the slaves would do, they would have two or three slaves might be interested in praying together. And so they would get a large kettle and they would lie on the ground on their backs with their heads together and they put, put the kettle over their heads so that they're praying up into the kettle and that way their prayers could not be heard by others but they were together in prayer and the kettle was their sanctuary and so kettle prayer just seems to have spread all over the plantations in the south if you're interested in this go to willfordministries.com you'll find out more will ford has a kettle that he inherited from his ancestors and he goes around um, describing what that was like and stirring up prayer for today. This is a different kind of insurrection than the one that Gabriel mounted in 1800. And this is going on all through th these decades prior to the Civil War. Here, for example, is G.W. Offley stating his experience with slaves in Maryland. Uh, after a Methodist revival in 1830, and they would disobey their ungodly masters and would go to meetings nights and Sundays. Offley claimed that he learned from his mother and father the potential revolutionary doctrine that God is no respecter of persons, but gave his son to die for all, bond or free, black or white, rich or poor that God protects those whom he chooses to sanctify for some task. And to illustrate this last belief, Offley recounted the story of praying Jacob, who was a slave in the state of Maryland. His master was very cruel to his slaves. Jacob's rule was to pray three times a day at just such an hour of the day, no matter what his work was or where he might be. 
he would stop and go and pray. His master has, has been to him and pointed his gun at him and told him if he did not cease praying, he would blow out his brains. Jacob would finish his prayer and then tell his master to shoot in welcome. Your loss will be my gain. I have two masters, one on earth, one in heaven. Master Jesus in heaven, Master Saunders on earth. I, will, I have a soul and a body. The body belongs to you, Master Saunders, but the soul to Jesus. Jesus says men ought always to pray, but you will not pray. Neither do you want to have me pray. Sometimes Mr. S. would be in the field about half drunk, raging like a madman, whipping the other slaves, and when Jacob's hour would come for prayer, he would kneel down and pray, but he, Saunders, could not strike the man of God. A different kind of insurrection. Oftentimes, white people look at slave religion or slave prayer or slave worship or slave spirituals like it was a kind of pie in the sky, a kind of way that they would get, get comfort because there was so little comfort uh, here on earth. And, and so that whole era of slave faith uh, is demeaned and I believe misunderstood. I believe what was happening, if we look at it from the standpoint of the word of God, is very different from pie in the sky or just people getting comfort from religion. You see, Adam was given dominion, but he abused that dominion after he sinned, and we see the story of the abuse of power, the abuse of dominion and authority in the first several chapters of the book of Genesis. Jesus came as the second Adam, but Jesus did not use dominion and power in the same way. He had to demonstrate how redeemed people live and how redeemed people exercise authority. And so Jesus's authority is exercised by means of prayer. And so we see that whole lifestyle developing and through prayer, Dominion is exercised over the earth. That's Jesus' second Adam kind of authority. And then Jesus invites us to have that authority and to exercise that authority on earth. That is what was happening by slave prayer. In slave prayer, God was requiring somebody to stand on the earth and ask for the emancipation of the slaves. Who better, who better qualified, who better motivated than slaves to pray for emancipation? So God found his royal priesthood among the slaves and he had them praying night and day for decades and then transformation. That's the real secret behind the power of God working through slave prayer and bringing transformation. 